electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. Happy Monday. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead this hour. The Fed is done raising rates and has already won the war on inflation. A bold call from billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones and a few Fed mem- a view that few Fed members actually seem to share. Even with more signs today that growth is slowing, officials are saying more work still needs to be done. Their next decision is less than a month away, and we'll look at what that means for the markets in the meantime. Plus, our market guest is eyeing big opportunity in regional banks. You were just hearing a debate about that. He sees a big buying opportunity in the crown jewels as the broad index remains nearly 50 percent below its highs. He'll tell us which four names he's eyeing. And this year's first legit merger Monday, several big deals to tell you about. But are they part of a larger trend or not? We'll dive into that, look at who could be next, and ask how you can play it if the answer is yes. First, though, let's start with the markets, where we're seeing a much better tone than we were this morning. Dow's up 46 points, S&P's up 11 to 41.35, Nasdaq's up a half percent, leading the way and on track for its third positive day in four. Flipping over to the rate picture, this is the case even as rates seem to be firming up somewhat today. You can see the 10-year, 350, the two-year, it's been sitting right at this level, almost placid today, not moving right at 4%. Again, we had some hawkish Fed speak this morning. We'll get to that in a second, but we also have the dollar lower after its best week since September. Quick look at the dollar index down a quarter percent, still over 102. The increasing trend is still evident if you go back to last Monday. And we're watching shares of Shake Shack today, where activist investor Engage Capital is planning to run a POC proxy fight for three board seats. They think they can double profitability within two years, and it could be a tough two years in terms of the macro. Shares continue to rally throughout the session here. They're up 9%, hitting a 52-week high today, but still 50% below those all-time highs we saw back in Feb of 2021. Now, meantime, total consumer debt hitting a new high of more than $17 trillion. We learned this from the New York Fed today. This was for the first quarter. Mortgage debt, still the biggest chunk of that as valuations rise. High balances are offsetting weak activity in general. Refis originations were actually their lowest in over a decade. And notably, we didn't see the usual Q1 drop in credit card debt, which came in flat after a big surge in Q4. We're watching these credit trends closely. As we meanwhile got uh, evidence as well that manufacturing continues to weaken. This time, the New York region this morning, back to those January lows, more than a negative 31 reading. So pretty sharp decline there. All of which is raising the question, is it time for the Fed to stop hiking? Here's what billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Tudor Jones told Andrew Ross Sorkin this morning on Squawk Box. I think they've done hiking. I'm so glad I don't have his job because listening to these guys try to not say what they really want to say and what they really think. What do you think he really wants to say? He wants to say we're done. We've gone too far and enough's enough. Now, Tudor Jones was specifically referencing some comments from Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby this morning. He spoke to Steve Leisman at the Atlanta Fed Financial Markets Conference. Let's bring in Steve now for some more reaction, along with Kathy Bustanchik. She's Nationwide's chief economist. Welcome to both of you. And, Steve, some fast-moving developments this morning. But even going back to Michelle Bowman on Friday, other than Goolsby, the theme seems to be some hawkishness from these Fed officials. 
Yeah, even the dove is a little hawkish. We'll go through that. Two Fed presidents, they spoke on CNBC this morning, saying they were content to hold rates at current levels and gauge the impact of what amounts to 500 basis points of tightening on the U.S. economy before figuring out what they're going to do next. But Atlanta Fed President Rafael Bostic, he said his bias is towards higher rates if inflation does not recede. If I had a bias between going up and going down as our next action, I would say we might have to go up. Right. What we've seen is that inflation has been persistently high. Consumers have been really resilient in terms of their spending. And labor markets remain extremely tight. All of those suggest that there's still going to be upward pressure on prices. Now, Bostic pushed back against the market's pricing and rate cuts in the fall with the funds rate for January 24 trading around, oh, call it 440, 441 right now, or 75 basis points under the Fed's own average forecast. He even said, Bostic said he would not necessarily cut rates in a recession. Chicago Fed President Austin Goolsby saying he still had concerns about the impact of banking turmoil on the economy, and that made his decision to vote to support a rate hike earlier this month a tough one. The thing that made it a close call for me is this big question mark about what is going to be the impact of this on credit conditions. And in our business contacts and, and our look at the data, it didn't look in that period like it had gotten notably worse yet. Okay, one more. Minneapolis Fed President Neil Kashkari saying in the past, uh, saying this morning that the Fed has more work to do and inflation is still too high. Kelly, I don't agree with Paul Tudor Jones. I think these guys are saying what they what they think, and I, I don't think that they feel like they've gone too far. I think they are where they uh, want to be right now and are ready to kind of let things hold and settle out and see if they have any impact on inflation. Or maybe Goolsby, you know, would be you know even more. Um, I mean, he was pretty clear, I thought, in his comments as well. But I agree, Kathy. I want to turn to you because I don't really understand Bostic's point about how he would even see the need to, you know, not cut rates in a downturn. I mean, if there's evidence that wages, for instance, are, are high because the labor market is so tight, do we think they wouldn't come down in a bad recession? Thanks, Kelly. Uh, happy to be with you. Um, well, I, I think th this time is different. You know, normally um, after pausing, the, soon after, the Fed is traditionally cutting rates. Uh, and that's usually because we are in a recession or heading into one. Um, I think this time is different because inflation is so elevated and, and sticky um, and, and wage growth. It, you know, we've talked about this before. Wage growth isn't really the main reason it went up, but it helps to keep it elevated. Um, so I, I do think this time is different. Um, the, the key is, is seeing inflation slow. If they see that uh, meaningfully and they're confident is going eventually back to 2 percent, right. then, they, then they can cut rates. I mean, I guess I would take issue with the idea that inflation is sticky or elevated because we don't know yet. We've already seen the CPI retrace almost perfectly a third of its increase. We've seen M2, which was way hot, go way down. The near-term forward spread, Michael Darno was writing about this the other day. The Fed itself has said it has some predictive power. It was, you know, positive 200. Now it's negative 200. It seems like this is going... We're not in a situation where inflation is going to stay high and sticky. And the break-evens are telling I mean, maybe only the consumer expectations, but it would make sense those would kind of be delayed. So I just wish Bostic would give more evidence of why he thinks that there will be, you know, a case for keeping rates high, even as the economy starts to weaken. Well, I, I think that, it, it, you know, I guess we would take a different view in, in saying it's it's not clear that inflation is going to, uh, decline swiftly. Um, I, I think it's going to continue to be on a gradual descent. Um, and it's particularly when you look at you know, the core services number that we all look at, super core services, and particularly you look at transportation services, 
excluding airfare, you're seeing a lot of uh, still um, rapid increases, car repairs, which we look at very closely, uh, and maintenance is, is up almost it's 70%, it, it running around 20%, really. So that's a real problem, and, and that um, is, is really related in part to the lack of um, supply for new cars and also used cars. And that has improved, but, but still far from back to normal. That may actually take until 2025 to get back into better supply demand uh, balance. So right. I think you know, the cautious view, a little hawkish bias, I, you know, that, that's where we would be as well. But I guess, Steve, I would say it makes sense that it would take till 2025 because it took us 16 months to get to 9.1% CPI inflation. It takes a long time. It happens with a lag, right? So we can say inflation's not going to come down till 2025, and that's still consistent with us being able to cut rates considerably. The neutral rate keeps dropping right now. So it, arguably policy has tightened even without them doing anything further. Yes, that's true, but it's not going to come down on its own, Kelly, I think is the idea at the Federal Reserve that, um, and, and you've heard them talk about the history of these things quite a bit, which is that in the past when they've kind of taken their foot off the brake, inflation has come back, and so they're definitely concerned about that. I do want to underscore a bit of a warning from Austin Goolsby, which was kind of, kind of said it laughing and a little joking, but it's kind of serious. He pointed out that SVB had as part of its outlook in its interest rate stance on its portfolio, the idea that the Fed would cut. And you see what happened to SVB. And inside of that is a little bit of a warning of mm. don't fight the Fed. Take the Fed very seriously when it says it's going to maintain uh, a high rate until inflation comes down. You know, the market has this uh, a bias in it for cuts. It's got 75 basis points built in this year. It's got cuts as soon as September. And I keep hearing that's not on and the market has that wrong. And even Goolsby, who, as you correctly point out, is maybe one of the more dovish guys out there saying, you know what, you'd be making a mistake if you bet the farm on it. Right. And, you know, obviously, Kathy, we have the senior loan officer survey. I mean, that's the Fed's own survey. It just, you know, there doesn't seem to be any emphasis at all on leading indicators here. And it, I think it's fine to say, look, they're pointing one way, but we, ha you know, time will tell. No, the future is never certain. Um, but they, I don't just see a lot of discussion about that at all. I mean, what would you say the messages from the loan officer survey in terms of what the economy is going to look like in two or three quarters time? Yeah, it's definitely tightening. I mean, it was tightening before the SBB and, and other bank failures. Um, it maybe it didn't, the share, the number didn't rise as much as some people thought, uh, but the cost of funding went up, right? The spread relative to banks' uh, funding costs. So th there is a significant tightening coming on. And, and we, yeah, we don't know the degree. I think that's why they're going to pause. I don't think they're going to raise rates any further. Um, but they really want to see inflation come down. And it, as Steve said, they saw the 1970s. They don't want to repeat that. And, and unfortunately, I think they're going to err on the side of more constraints, slower economy. Um, and, and these leading indicators are going to watch them, but they're going to really want to see the whites of the eyes of inflation slowing before they, they even take, you know, yeah. take the restrictiveness out of policy. Quick last word, Steve. Yeah, Kelly, I mean, how tight the Fed is depends a lot upon what input you use to come up with the real funds rate or the inflation adjusted rate. If you use like the current one year uh, inflation expectations, the Fed is not really that tight relative. It, it is tight relative to three or five or 10 year expectations, but not relative to one year expectations. And so um, there is thinking out there among hawkish people who I'm speaking with that perhaps the Fed needs to go higher, five and a half, maybe even 
7.6% is a possibility out there, with the big caveat being how much work does the banking uh, uh, credit standards do for the Federal Reserve. And what I'm hearing here is that there's not an expectation that it's going to make, mean a major economic downdraft. It'll take a few points off or a few tenths of a point off GDP right now. That's the thinking. But they are not banking on uh, a recession being caused by tighter credit standards. Was that, sorry, Steve, I missed the beginning of that, the consumer one-year expectations or what the market thinks? Uh, consumer one-year uh, expectations, I forget what it is, but it's somewhere in the four and a half, four, yeah. six, four, six area. That means that means your Fed is just a half a point or, or six, 60 basis points tight. The Taylor rule would suggest they need to be one and a half to two percentage points tight in order to bring down inflation relative to where they are and their target. All right. Well, as we heard this morning um, from uh, Jim, um, Mr. Bricks, when he was on the 11 o'clock hour, when he said those consumer inflation expectations might be the most important thing and what you're saying backs that up for sure, uh, that becomes, you know, one of the most important things every second Friday at this point. We'll leave it there and appreciate it for both of you joining us today. Steve Leisman and Kathy Buschanzik on the economy. Paul Tudor Jones also thinks the Fed should stop hiking, believing the markets will finish the year higher from here and saying he'd buy any debt ceiling dips. My next guest is also a buyer on weakness and is already picking through the regional banks for opportunity. Sandy Villery is here. He's partner and portfolio manager at Villery and Company. You've been busy, Sandy, and looking at the regional banks in particular. Yeah, it just seems like a, a kind of the pond we want to fish in. You know, we always like, uh, I guess, great stories with uh, maybe short term, short term sort of warts on them. It just seems like this is an area where we were we were underweight. We really don't want to be long financials going into a recession. But now you've already had the KRE down, what, 36 percent on the year. It's down 50 uh, percent off its high practically. So now you're seeing a lot of opportunities with uh, really, really high quality banks trading it less than one time book value. Uh, just feels like a nice area to start to. Uh, dust off the file and put some money to work. We just showed your five names. Obviously, these are smaller than the MNTs, the PNCs of the world. Is that because you wouldn't, you know, get into that market cap size, or because uh, you think they're less attractive? Yeah, I, I just think that this is where the opportunity is. Um, you know, the, the regional banks have about four times as much exposure to commercial real estate, you know, as the money center banks, and so um, they've been overly beaten up. I think because of that, um, you know, certainly seeing. Uh, anybody with exposure to office, you know, it hit 12.9% as far as vacancies go. So that's an all-time high. But if we can avoid some of the uh, th those exposures and we can find, uh, you know, a little bit of a diamond in the rough, I just think that's a great opportunity to um, to, to to pull up one of these uh, Webster Financial in New York. I mean, they've got $8 billion in health savings accounts, very sticky, small balances. Um, just, just feels to me like something uh, of an opportunity as opposed to uh, as opposed to not. Yeah, you know, Eric Rosengren was tweeting something this morning about how he thinks deposit flight might actually be higher at large banks than at smaller ones, which would make some sense if you think that those might be really sophisticated players who are really uh, eager, especially if they're more, you know, commercial clients, to pick up that yield, almost have a fiduciary duty to. Whereas with regional banks, you might get people who go, OK, I know there's an opportunity cost, but I, I'm not yet, you know, needing to pick up my money and move it there. Yeah, and, and we're seeing it with our, our clients. We, we, we at our custodian, I mean, we tend to... Um you know, we're buying the money market uh, accounts that are at 4.8 percent. A lot of people, you know, deposits are certainly leaving banks uh, to go to, you know, higher money market uh, uh, yields. And you're certainly seeing that with, you know, net interest margins should certainly come down as, you know, banks tend to or people are not going to borrow as much money with higher rates. And they're going to certainly try to put their money away. But at some point, uh, you're left with sort of core deposits that are tied to a lot of these loans. And I think that's where, um, you know, you could see some stability. The banks we talk to, uh, it feels like the 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 run the the, the deposits um, are are no longer fleeing. It seems like 
So I think there's some stability, and this is a, a great opportunity to buy when, um, again, when, when things are really uh, uncertain and, 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 and things are cheap. Webster Financial is a New York bank, Pinnacles in Nashville. You also like the Texas bank, Cullen Frost. We've spoken with the CEO, Independent Bank Prosperity. So you're kind of looking at uh, regions of the economy that are relatively stronger. What about the New York uh, bank, though, Webster? Yeah, so I, I, I think it's, an, uh, again, I don't own it. Uh, we're looking at it hard, but uh, I do like the stickiness of their deposits. I do like that they've got uh, you know, not as much um, commercial exposure, not as much office uh, as, you, as you'd see elsewhere. So I think it's one worth taking a look at. Um, and, and we certainly like that the, those Texas markets, um, Prosperities in Houston, um, Independent Bank is uh, you know basically in McKinney, which is just north of Dallas. Also has some exposure to Denver. But if you start looking at those really really nice regions um, and, and and a solid backdrop, you really can pick up sort of a crown jewel um, of of franchises. When uh, I'd say there's blood running in the street, it certainly feels that way. And uh, if anybody's got a two or a three year horizon. This is when you want to be buying uh, into, into sectors like this. Are you guys waiting? Because I know you think recession could be coming in Q3. Are you waiting for that, for valuations to get even deeper, or, or are you going to buy them here? We're going we're gonna to be looking in the next month, I would say. Uh, we're, we're getting into that seasonally uh, sell in May and go away type of time frame where I think you could see uh, a little more volatility. But if you were to get a, a, a bigger sell-off uh, because of the debt ceiling, which I think you know they've, they've raised the ceiling, what, 78 times since 1960, I just feel like it's uh, you know more of a political uh, situation at this point. I think they're going to get something done. So if you do see sell-offs as it relates to that, um, we could be moving a lot more quickly uh, than, than waiting a month or two. All right. Sandy with the strategy. Thank you so much today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Sandy Villery with Villery & Co. Coming up, it's the first legit merger Monday we've had in a while. According to our next guest, one of these deals is worth nearly $19 billion, and it's an energy play. Could there be more mergers in the pipeline? We'll debate. First, though, Chewy back, posting back-to-back positive weeks for the first time since Feb. One analyst naming it a top pick ahead of results on a valuation call. Is it more bark than bite? We'll ask next. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on markets. A Dow, stocks are pretty much at session highs with the Dow racing 138-point loss. It's up 87. The S&P's up 16 to 4140. NASDAQ up three-quarters of a percent right now. The small cap Brussels that Sandy was just talking about up 1.6%. The 10-year note up to 351, the yield on that. We'll be back in just a moment here on The Exchange. Jake from State Farm here, hanging out with Mel's Mowing Grow. Mel chose State Farm for small business insurance because his local agent is a small business owner, too. So she knew how to help him personalize his policies. And now he's rolling in the green. Like a... Like a good neighbor? Guys, I'm trying to do the line. Oh, sorry, Jake. It's all good. Like a good neighbor? State Farm is there. Talk to an agent today. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Shares of Chewy, the online pet retailer, about a percent and a half higher today, but still down more than 70% from their all-time high. Roth MKM naming the stock a top pick, saying shares were at their lowest valuation since the first quarter of last year. It's trading at just one-time sales versus a peak of more than five-time sales back during the boom. Here to discuss why he sees 50% upside, the analyst behind this call, David Bellinger with Roth MKM. David, welcome. Hey, Kelly, thanks for having me. By the way, as I'm trying to get my head around the story, is, is Ryan Cohen still involved with this stock? Remind me. He is not. He has been out for some time now. Okay, so this is a, a Ryan Cohen free, just chewy as a business, valuation reset. Is it uh, profitable? Does it make money yet? Yeah, so Chewy's had an inflection point, in my view. They've had a big step up in active customers. So the end of 2019, they had about 13 million actives. Now we're sitting just over 20 million. And over these last four quarters, Chewy's flipped to positive adjusted EBITDA, positive net income, whether you include share-based compensation or not. And I think this is becoming a much more profitable profitable business from here. You've got $11 billion in revenue now. About seven to $8 billion of that is auto-ship. And they're managing the expense base very well around that. They've got great visibility, just given that this subscription model is really working and I think that's what helps Chewy get to the next level from here. At some point, do we start talking about valuation and, you know, old fuddy-duddy P.E. terms, or are we th- still a ways off from that? Well, I'm sure we'll get there eventually. So I'm looking at valuation in terms of revenue at this point as Chewy continues to invest and build out their business model. But as we get a little further out, maybe a couple of years from now, we'll start looking at this on an EV to EBITDA basis and then eventually P.E., and I do think there is some kind of coiled spring dynamic here within the earnings line. And you know, once they move past these larger investments, Chewy's going international now. They're also getting into healthcare, some of these higher margin businesses. And that could push them to a you know, high single digit type EBITDA margin business. And I think with that, you've got a big step up in earnings growth. Is online delivery a, a business model with long term promise? You know, is the profitability going to deliver these, you know, what were incredibly high valuations? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it depends on the category. So Chewy, it is big and bulky product, right? They are delivering some 50-pound bags of dog food, cat litter, things of that nature. But going back to my point earlier, I think they have hit this tipping point in terms of scale where you know, they can make these two-day deliveries, but do it in a very profitable way. And just step back here for a second. Chewy is not like some of these other e-commerce names where you had a big pull forward in demand. I'm, I'm talking about like a Wayfair, Carvana, Peloton. I was thinking support, of Wayfair exactly, yeah. Where you have this big pull forward, but then the management teams aggressively invested behind that. Okay, so Chewy's largely sidestepped that. Okay, they, they didn't step up and overhire or build their expense base in a, in a way where they can't catch up to that. And now we're seeing some of these other models really have the, the revenue line pull back and revenues unwind. Chewy's been largely immune to that. They're still growing revenues at a double-digit clip. Look, I, I think that continues from here on out. Yeah, I was going to ask if they were kind of the only name in your coverage universe that you were positive on, but they're kind of the only online retailer in your coverage universe, which mostly has names like AutoZone and Five Below and, you know, I mean, yes, Wayfair, but Home Depot even, which you're neutral on. So um, why do you think there's 50% upside kind of in the near term and what could be, you know, a recession within a quarter or two? Yeah, so I do cover an interesting group, consumer growth and e-commerce. And stepping back, Chewy Screens is one of these names with big potential upside here. And it's a bit of a hybrid, right, where we're all talking about recession. Pet has been a fantastic category, okay? And they've been able to pass through a lot of pricing inflation. You've got 
pet food up double digits. They've largely been a beneficiary of that. And it, it's to me, it screens as one of these healthier categories, one of these more stable categories. Mm-hmm. So if we do have some kind of spending pullback, I, I think Chewy is pretty safe. And then if we do get in more of an all clear to these growthier names, you know, names like auto parts, like AutoZone, O'Reilly, they, they could potentially become a source of funds for these higher growth names if, if we do get that all clear. Mm, good point. I mean, AutoZone, O'Reilly, like MasterCard and Visa, you know, and maybe NVIDIA last decade. Now I feel like these auto parts retailers have been on kind of a similar hot streak lately. And you're, bullet, you're positive on them still, right? I am. I, in unison with this Chew report, I notched down O'Reilly Auto for my top pick. I, I've still got a buy rating on it. I think it's this slow grind higher from here. But if we look at the last year, the stock's been up 60%. Right. Valuation's starting to get a little stretched. So I, I think smarter investors are getting ahead of that and starting to trim. And I think the days of potentially 60% upside in a year, I, I think that's largely in the rear view at this point. All right, David. So uh, good to have you on today. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much. David Bellinger with Roth MKM. Still ahead, the clock is ticking. There aren't many days left in session for Congress to get a deal done. We'll ask Goldman's chief political economist what he expects to happen with the debt ceiling and the impact on markets and the economy. And as we go to break, here's a look at the Dow heat map with the uh, index up about 50 points overall. We're pretty evenly split. Uh, Blue chips are trying to avoid their 10th down day in 11, by the way. The exchange is back after this. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Welcome back to The Exchange. As mentioned before the break, Dow is trying to avoid its eighth down day out of nine, and it's only up 16 right now in what's been a bumpy session so far. The S&P, a little bit bigger margin of safety, up about nine points, 41.33. The Nasdaq's really got the cushion today. It's up about two-thirds of 1%. Let's take a look at shares of SoFi. We've covered them quite a bit on the show in the last couple of weeks. Uh, a lot of positivity from Andrew Jeffrey on Friday, and today a very different story with the shares down 5.5% and earlier down as much as 11% on the session. Why? Wedbush this morning downgraded the stock to underperform and slash their targets trading at 475 to 250 from $5. They say fair value accounting could present some headwinds. The firm adds that if SoFi used the same accounting as Lending Club, its book value would drop by nearly 60%. SoFi says its loans are fair value marked every month using company-specific and macro factors to reflect what an expected sale price would be. They argue their disclosure is consistent with prior quarters, and regardless of whether loans are marked as held for sale or to maturity, the accounting treatment is the same. But you can see a lot of these concerns that have been evolving around some of the regional banks and the business models in fintech are kind of coming home to roost with SoFi shares down 5.5% on this bearish call today. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Ty? Kelly, thank you very much. And here, folks, is your CNBC News update at this hour. The United Nations issuing a somber update on the toll of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The U.N. confirming more than 8,800 civilian deaths since February of 2022 and cautioning that the true toll could be even higher. This comes as President Volodymyr Zelensky is in Europe to shore up support from allies ahead of a planned counteroffensive in the east of Ukraine. 
Heavy rains over the weekend posing a threat to the migrants crossing the U.S. southern border after the lifting of so-called Title 42. Officials, officials from the National Weather Service said the deluge is expected to swell the Rio Grande River and make crossing even more dangerous. Amid the expected migrant influx, DHS officials say they have expanded the CPB, CBP-1 app to allow up to 1,000 people to make appointments to apply for legal asylum. And more severe weather expected in the Pacific Northwest. A weekend heat wave continuing today with cities like Portland and Seattle setting records. Yesterday, the hot temperatures are also extending into parts of western Canada, fueling the unprecedented wildfire conditions out there in the West. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, I will see you soon. Thank you very much. Coming up, with the Dow trying to hang on to a four-point gain, the EU approving Microsoft's potentially doomed $69 billion takeover of Activision Blizzard. And that's just one of three major deals making headlines today. Is deal-making sneaking back into the market? We'll debate as the Dow turns negative again next. Welcome back to The Exchange. We've got some deals to talk about today, starting in energy with One Oak buying Magellan for nearly $19 billion, giving One Oak exposure to the refined products and crude oil transport business. One Oak down 8%, though, on this deal, while Magellan's up 11%. In mining, Newmont agreeing to buy Newcrest for nearly $18 billion as the world's biggest gold producer gets even bigger and goes all in on copper. Both those stocks positive today. And finally, the EU greenlighting Microsoft and Activision's mega deal after the UK basically already spiked it. Uh, both of those shares are are higher. So where should we expect more deal making and where not? For more, I'm joined by two Dan P's. Dan Pickering of Pickering Energy Partners. He is the CIO. And Dan Primack is Axios business editor. Welcome to you both. Um, Dan Primack, let me just start with you because what phase of the deal making cycle are we in? We seem to have as much bankruptcy filings. We see private equity starting to get more involved, maybe with some of these distressed deals, but maybe we're early stages there. We have an administration that seems hostile towards a lot of big deals happening. Um, I, I, just tell me where we are in the cycle. I think we're in private equity sweet spot, right? And, you know, you were obviously talking about a bunch of strategic deals, and, and that's what we saw today. That was kind of today's Merger Monday. But in general, as you said, private equity has an enormous amount of cash. And even though there's some problems kind of in the leveraged uh, financing market, the private credit market has exploded. So there is access to capital. And you have big corporations, which are often looking to divest, to refocus on core businesses as growth slows. So this is, And then, as you said, you do have this antitrust situation, which is something private equity really hasn't had to deal with. It's mostly been True. one strategic buying another. So to me, th this is kind of salad days for uh, financial sponsors. Let me just follow up on that, which is an interesting point. You know, the administration doesn't want to see corporate combinations, although it seems like maybe in energy and in mining, they're going to let these move forward. But are they going to ever step in and tell a private equity firm they can't buy? You know, I don't think they're huge fans of private equity either, but it sounds like they're, you know, kind of delivering up these deals if, if they can't be bought by a competitor. Uh, the next time will be the first time, right? It hasn't happened yet. And, and when you hear the FTC and the DOJ, they definitely have a much more expansive view of antitrust and monopoly law than have past administrations. But so far, I haven't heard from either one of them going at private equity. And, and that makes a certain sort of sense because private equity, and look, this is a reason private equity has always argued that it's not, you know, systemically risky. They do kind of hold these individual companies and individual silos. And so far, we haven't seen private equity take one giant portfolio company and try to merge it with another giant portfolio company, True. at least not two that are kind of market leaders. True. So if we are at a sweet spot in private equity, Dan Pickering, are we also in a sweet spot for energy? 
energy deals. I know we spoke to you about this a little while ago. We are starting to see this trickle picking up somewhat, although, again, One Oak shares are down 8 percent today. What does that tell you? Sure. Kelly, in a world where uh, growth has slowed in the oil patch, right, we're in a capital discipline world, not a growth world for energy companies. So when, when you're not growing organically, you look to grow via consolidation, right? You combine companies. And so I think we're at the pretty early stages uh, for the energy sector. It's not going to be private equity driven. It's going to be sort of self-help or organic cash flow driven. And uh, I think we'll see more. You heard Exxon rumored to be buying Pioneer in the upstream space. This is a nice midstream deal. I think we'll see more. But is it, what does it tell you that we haven't seen Exxon actually go for uh, Pioneer or anything of that size and scale? Is it possible that they sensed pushback when that was floated? I don't, I don't think it's an investor issue. I think that, that this cycle compared to past cycles is moving a bit slower. Uh, if you looked historically when oil prices went up to the 75, 80, 85, 90, $100 range, you'd see companies react really quickly. I think what they've learned this go-round is that we're probably going to have more commodity volatility, but the likelihood that it sticks around for a while, I think, is certainly there. And so you don't have to run out in a frenzy uh, to pay up and jump into things. You can, can kind of take your time and pick your partners. And I think that's the kind of the process that we're in now. We're seeing private equity sell to public companies. We're seeing some small public company deals. The bigger ones, I think, are coming in the next few years. That's interesting. So it's kind of just running at a little bit slower pace. Dan Primack, what about Microsoft Activision? I mean, if there's any area we shouldn't expect, you know, there to be favorable um, you know, political wins, it would obviously be with these big tech mergers. The U.K. appeared to kill the deal, but now the EU says it can go forward. Yeah, it's interesting because when the FTC kind of sort of sued to block the deal, they did it kind of via an administrative court rather than going to a, a regular court, it kind of seemed like they were waiting on the EU to, to put the kibosh on it. And instead they didn't. You're right. They got it out of the UK. I, I don't quite understand or I understand why the EU did what it did. Right. It had to make a decision. I still don't see how this necessarily helps Microsoft. It's going to have to fight this in Great Britain because the interesting thing is, Unlike a U.S. antitrust situation, Microsoft doesn't have to prove or disprove its case in the U.K. All U.K. antitrust regulators really have to prove is that they did their job in terms of following procedure, not that their ultimate conclusion was the correct one or incorrect one. Right. So for Microsoft, they're either going to have to prove that the U.K. regulators did something wrong by their own standards or maybe just cleave off the UK business. But that's exactly. a major thing. Right. It's like, it, and I don't know if they would really try. Let me just ask both of you this real quickly then. Um, given the, the news flow, Dan uh, Primack, you first. Where else should people be looking for targets uh, in, if this is a sweet spot for private equity? I mean, really, really divestitures it, it kind of across the board. But although the place we've been seeing to me the, the most lately have been in healthcare, and that's really kind of sure. everything from pharma to devices to, to other biotech. That seems to be kind of one of the hottest spaces right now. Yeah. And Dan uh, Pickering, where in the energy space, now that we're starting to see, as you call them, kind of these, you know, midstream deals happen, who else does that potentially imply? Yeah, I think I think the reality is any company under 10 or 15 billion in market cap probably feel, feels the need to be bigger, whether they're a midstream company, upstream company, oil field services, et cetera. And so I'd look for sort of a, a smaller and mid cap uh, consolidation wave. I think the the bigger cap stuff is further out. Last point on, on the new technologies in energy, I think that they have really been hurt and we're going to start to see some combinations there out of sort of desperation or, or necessity as opposed to opportunism. 
Great point. Thank you both. Really appreciate it today. Dan Primek, Dan Pickering, the Dan Pease on this Merger Monday. Still ahead, President Biden said to meet with congressional leaders tomorrow to further discuss a debt ceiling deal. And with upcoming recesses for both the House and Senate, the already tight timeline is getting tighter. Goldman's chief political economist, Alec Phillips, tells us what he expects from that meeting and what to do with the markets in the meantime. That's next. Welcome back to The Exchange. President Biden is now set to meet with congressional leaders on the debt ceiling tomorrow. The meeting was postponed on Friday. Some saw it as a sign of progress being made behind the scenes. The president himself telling reporters yesterday he's staying optimistic and thinks an agreement with his is within reach. But Treasury Secretary Yellen still warning a default could come as early as June 1st. And my next guest points out there's very little time on the legislative calendar to reach a deal before then. The House is in recess starting May 26th. The Senate takes next week off. Can a deal, a deal even get done before the so-called State. Joining me now is Alec Phillips, chief U.S. political economist at Goldman Sachs, along with CNBC senior White House correspondent Kayla Tausche. Welcome to both of you, Alex. Alex, before I turn to you, Kayla, just give us a sense of the time frame here. Is it on? You know, do the do the vacations matter that much? I mean, can they just kind of barge through them, or is it like, you know, a very serious thing? Well, I, I think that it depends on who you ask, Kelly. I mean, the White House has been a fan of saying that the president is the president wherever he goes, even when he takes this up to 10-day trip to Asia, that he will be working the phones, he'll be in touch with his staff, and he'll be able to stay in touch on whatever's happening back in Washington. But Republicans have been very frustrated, vocally so, that the White House had refused to meet for several months and that now they're down to crunch time with quite a lot of material to sift through in terms of reaching a deal. And so I think as Speaker of the House Kevin McCarthy has said that he would feel better about the possibility of reaching a deal if they were where they were in negotiations and it were February, but because it's where it is in May that he feels less so. And anything that you would read uh, into the comments from the president yesterday, Kayla? Well, I think the president always wants to seem optimistic. I mean, he has branded himself as a deal maker, as someone who's willing to bridge the divide and to reach bipartisan agreements. And certainly the White House has uh, tried to approach this one no different. It's just that they did so at the 11th hour. I mean, they're still negotiating four key policy buckets, and the president has signaled that he's open to moving his position slightly in some of those that are really important to Republicans, like requiring work for recipients of government programs um, government aid programs. But, you know, it's it's unclear whether that will be enough of moving the needle to actually be where Republicans want and, and what would actually clinch a deal. True. Kayla, thank you. Uh, Kayla Tausche. Alec Phillips, let me turn to you and, and ask um, if you can give us kind of the real story. Right? Is there a real story? Does anybody know? I mean, what do you think could happen in the next, you know, 48 hours here? Well, I think, you know, probably two things. One is we will find out how serious these negotiations actually are um, when the president meets with congressional leaders tomorrow. I mean, right now, I'd say actually it, it sounds like things are going about as well as one could have expected um, in the sense that, you know, a week ago, a little bit more than a week ago, the White House was still maintaining the position that they would not negotiate on spending caps or uh, other uh, you know, policy concessions as part of a debt limit increase. And now a week later, you know, we're talking about how long spending caps should last, whether work requirements should be involved, uh, rescinding unused COVID money and so on. So, you know, I think that will be the first thing is to sort of see whether all of this negotiation over the last week has actually amounted to very much. And then I think the other thing is we will probably get an update from Secretary Yellen on when 
the so-called X date actually is. Um, and I, you know, my guess is that they will keep it in June, maybe explain totally. that it is kind of more of a specific date. I would imagine probably the week of June 5th is what they'll say. Uh, but that, you know, could also influence things to the extent that the date changes. It's in their interest to say that it's it's coming because they want a deal done. I mean, it's it's her prerogative, right? It's her problem if a deal is not made. So she's going to want to put the most pressure on them. But the markets are not putting that pressure on right now. The markets seem to be saying okay, maybe July, maybe August, maybe a deal. I mean, they're very um, placid, I guess is the word. Yeah, I can't remember. I mean, I've been following the debt limit stuff for many years, and I can't remember a time when the uncertain the the deadline was this uncertain, this close to the potential deadline. Uh, meaning that you know, right now it looks like it could be as early as you know. I'm not sure it really. There's that much of a risk of June first, but certainly early June. But I can also definitely see the scenario where it slips into late July. And that's basically because there's only a few days in early June where they might not be able to make payments. They take in a whole bunch of tax money June 15th, and then they'll probably be okay for a while. And so it's it's a very unusual uh, deadline. We've never had anything like this that I can remember before in any of the other you know, sort of big debt limit battles. Right. And I guess people are saving their ammo a little bit because they say, well, if we end up hitting it in July or August, you know, there's no need to, to fret right now. So it's just a matter of, I, I, I do you think everyone's waiting for the market to tell us, they go, you know, it's hard to figure out, but we assume stocks will sell off 15% if we're suddenly going to hit it, you know, tomorrow or something. Yeah, I think, I mean, my impression just in talking about this with a lot of people in the market is that we're ultimately, you know, not going to see big moves until we get within probably a few days of the deadline. And the only way that changes is if something, you know, really blows up in the in the near term. But I think more likely, you know, we just see these negotiations go on. Everybody assumes that they'll get a deal and it'll be, you know, at the last minute in the last few days ahead of whatever the X date turns out to be that somebody says, you know, the negotiations are off and, and so on. And then the market Sells you know, really reacts. Let me ask you about, I saw, you probably saw Lawrence Tribe's piece in the New York Times. He was on our network this morning talking about why he's changed his mind. And the president can unilaterally raise the debt limit. He said he didn't feel that way during the Obama days, but he feels that way now. Is he removing the impetus for the president to make any concessions on a deal here? I mean, if the base goes, well, wait a minute, this expert says you can just, you know, raise it, you know, using the 14th Amendment. Why would you agree to all of these spending cuts? And why would you throw Republicans a bone? Why is the president? I mean, you can see those lines emerging. So is the support for the president doing it unilaterally actually going to undermine his ability to agree to any concessions and come to a deal? Well, I think, you know, one way to read that is that it is setting up um, the administration to maybe drive a harder bargain than they would otherwise drive because it allows them to say, either you do the deal that we want or we're going to take care of this unilaterally and you can try to stop us. Um, at the same time, though, I would say, you know, if you look at what Secretary Yellen has said about these options, it is not it has not been that enthusiastic. And my sense is that while it sounds good on paper uh, or, you know, I'm not even sure it sounds good on paper. Right. Um, I think there's a real question as to whether it would be a practical solution, because, of course, somebody would challenge it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of his, I think, points is that it's not clear that people actually have standing to challenge it, but ultimately somebody would challenge it. And how do you auction Treasury securities 
in the midst of legal proceedings over whether those Treasury securities right. were actually you know, issued under uh, U.S. law. No, and so I think it's it's difficult to do. Absolutely, and it's a big platform. Um, you know, it's it's unclear if we're, if we're trying to help or hurt the cause, but um, perhaps he would just say, you know, to be intellectually honest, that he that he thinks that that is an option, and and we'll see if we get closer to that in the weeks to come. But of course, I'm most interested in how it influences those, those negotiations right now. Alec, thanks for your time today. We'll check back in soon. We hope. Thanks, Alec Phillips with Goldman Sachs. Before we go, this mega cap tech stock has climbed about 33% so far this year. And get this, its market cap is now greater than the entire Russell 2000. We'll reveal the name next. Dow's down 33. Welcome back, Apple. That was our mystery chart. Apple is now worth more than the entire market cap of the entire Russell 2000. That's the focus of today's Check Check with Deirdre Bosa, although I don't know what we're supposed to infer from it, Deirdre. Uh, Well, you know what? It's another in a list of milestones. Apple was the first to reach a trillion in market cap, then two trillion. Recently, its market cap became bigger than almost any stock market in the world. You might remember that a lot was made of it. And now, as Kelly said, bigger than the combined 2,000 small caps in the Russell 2000. So as Apple grows, Kelly, as always, the valuation question arises again. Is Apple overpriced? We'll take a look on a forward price to earnings basis. It is more expensive than an alphabet and meta, even though revenue growth is expected to actually contract this year. On the flip side, though, you've heard this argument from the bulls to justify that premium, improving gross margins, pricing power, rise of services. And Kelly, something that's being discussed more and more these days, growth in Apple's installed user base, up to $2 billion at last count. And that creates that whole ecosystem that is within Apple that the, that the bulls really do love and point to. Yeah, and we kind of got through all of tech earnings season. You know what's interesting, Deirdre, is I saw the Wall Street Journal covering, I'm sure others have too, the headset that they're coming out with. And it's got the battery pack, this mega bag of battery pack thing. And they're saying, you know, and is it because Johnny Ives isn't there anymore? Or is this just the kind of product where you have to really get out there and experiment? But could it be a brand risk if people, but it seems like it's more for gamers anyway. Yeah, you know, that'll certainly have the bulls and bears divided, right? It could be a risk. It could be the next revenue driver. But I did just see a tweet, Kelly, from Palmer Lucky. Remember, he's the Mm. guy that created Oculus that was then purchased by Facebook, now Meta. And he said it's great. I don't know if he's joking, Hmm. um, but coming from him, that's kind of important. The guy that created Oculus, he's saying that the Apple headset is great. Can you imagine if it's a hit and, and Meta all of a sudden? You know, they're like the Intel and Windows. You know, you've got Apple hardware, you got Meta doing its Metaverse thing, and all of a sudden, who gets the last laugh? Well, that's, that's what Apple does, right? Patiently waits, patiently creates something, and then comes into the market. Doesn't necessarily need that first mover advantage. Remember the iPhone and my beloved Rim and BlackBerry. I saw someone the other day still using a BlackBerry, and I got a little nostalgic. <laughs> yeah, no, that's and, there, and there's like a, a Netflix series out or something about it. Everyone says you got to check it out. Deirdre, thank you for now. We appreciate it, Deirdre Bosa. And a quick programming note, must mention, must watch. Tomorrow, David Faber will have a live interview with Tesla CEO Elon Musk, 6 p.m. Eastern, after the company's annual meeting right here live on CNBC. That does it for us on The Exchange today. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. 
Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply.